This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Carol Squire, Sufi Dervish, Fourth Way teacher, transactional analysis facilitator, sound healer, Reiki master, leader, woman, mother, and a student just like all of us. Carol Squire is also the co-founder of the international Akaldan's Fourth Way School, begun with Akash Dharmaraj in India. Together they have co-created a unique style of transmission of the Fourth Way work using the movements as a vehicle for awakening and transformation. Carol is a loving, compassionate human who cares deeply about the work and does this work of transmission only because she loves it. Carol has been leading groups all over the world for the past 35 years, integrating Sufi practices and transactional analysis into her work with high-profile corporate leaders, nonprofit organizations, personal groups and individuals, and whoever asks to learn. She has taught the Gurdjieff sacred dances in India, including in the Osho commune in Pune, Israel, Portugal, Ethiopia, Israel, and in North America, where she is now based. From Whidbey Akaldans, her center on a beautiful island in Puget Sound, Washington, she conducts ongoing classes, workshops, weekend retreats, and offers residential opportunities for those who wish a longer exposure to the Akaldans way. Carol Squire, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thanks, Stuart. It's great to have you, and um, we will begin with the usual first question that has developed over the years in this um, series of podcasts to first-time guests. And uh, that question is an invitation, begins with an invitation for you to cast your mind back to childhood and youth, and um, let arise um, any particular experiences that, in retrospect, you could you could say these were harbingers, these um, experiences or feelings or thoughts were harbingers of the way that my uh, life, my career in spiritual work would later take me. So allow that to settle, and uh, um, we will... Um, invite you to talk about it. Okay. I am, um, of course, like many of us that are elder in the spiritual path, um, went through a lot of therapy. So a lot of things that happened in my youth, um, I didn't understand or even remember until I was in my 40s or 50s. Mm. And so if you had asked me this question in my 30s, I would have said, there was nothing special, uh, dull, ordinary, <clears throat> suburban, Midwestern upbringing, uh, little imagination, little ambition, really good at school, 
like to read that sort of thing. But what I subsequently uncovered um, shows me, I think, how how I and perhaps others rewrite our stories constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I probably rewrite my origin story every five years with different different insight. So let me just pick some some random things that I have um, remembered and and <laughs> felt the gradual impact of them on my life now as I have time to allow. Um, one was that as a kid, I had really vivid, lurid, um, incredibly creative nightmares. Hmm. Um, they were about uh death and God and heroism. And I always died horrible deaths, the kind of things where you um, wake up just before you hit the ground or (laughs) (laughs) Um, discussions with my pediatrician and mother after I was in a coffin kind of thing, asking. Yeah. yeah. And I just, you know, I just thought they were, uh, I don't know. They were normal for me. And at some point, um, I was so afraid of them that I couldn't sleep anymore. And um, I, my parents were loving, adoring parents uh, who believed like 50s, 60s era's parents that, you know, if a kid wakes up in the night, you take them back to their bed and tell them there's nothing under the bed and there's nothing to be afraid of and just tough it out. So I decided at age four that I should tough it out. And uh, I promptly stopped having nightmares. And I basically haven't dreamed since then. So, so what, what, I mean, Occasionally, something will will come through, and I work with it so that I can allow more dreams. But I think what I've learned from that is that even as a child, I had a very strong will. I had um, a clear understanding that the world wasn't a dangerous place. The world was basically good. Um, however, I was on my own in it. Hmm. And it was up to me to make decisions to protect myself. And I was capable of it. So why shouldn't I do it? So, you know, as I, as I grew with my personality, um, I, I grew my personality with a vengeance. And along with the dreams, I shut off the nurturance of the essence. Mm. And and it, it worked really well for my career. It worked, it worked really well for me, um, sort of without too many obstacles. I, I, I just bowled obstacles over. I won't say there weren't obstacles, but I just didn't let them slow me down ever. And I, and I always said life is really easy. Um, I had a good career. I was really good at my job. Um, But I had shut off. I had shut off that essence. Um, 
And so the, the work for me was to undo the, the many small eyes, the many small selves um, that not to undo them, to understand them, mm-hmm. to uh, comfort them, to let them know that I could still take care of myself while being open and vulnerable. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think that's the one major impression if I told my story today, that my work since then has been working to prune away that personality in healthy ways um, so that I could, you know, early on, I realized taking care of myself wasn't very hard. Um, so then I took on taking care of a lot of other things and a lot of other people. And because I was so good at it, um, I got more and more. I'm sure you know what that is. Um, so pretty soon I thought I was going to single-handedly save the world from most of the injustices that I came upon, incredible arrogance that came along with that personality. So um, dropping off, I I still have a hard time saying I can't do it. (laughs) I could do it it if I chose to do it is where I still go. Um, It's just really hard for me to let go of. If I really had something that needed to be done, it would be really hard for me to say I couldn't do it. Um, but I'm, I'm, that's, that's fascinating. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I, I resonate a little bit. Oh, I resonate a lot. Uh, actually the, the, the powerful dreams at, at the age you're talking about as well for me, I had, uh, something, something like that. Um, but, uh, but to get back to your story, I, I'm, uh, you, you mentioned for, for just for a moment, your, your career that you were very good at. I mean, and just, just for context, the sake of context, um, I'm wondering what that what that work was and um, how that um, uh, how that manifested in your life. You know, it was totally um, unplanned and and for the most part unstructured. I just went one step at a at a time. I went into the Peace Corps. I was uh, an English teacher in an African village kind of situation. I got myself kicked out of the Peace Corps on principle. Nothing like drugs. Um, I uh, stayed on, I taught, I ended up starting um, a company and I had never thought I would do that. I was an English teacher. So I started my first company. I was 27. It was a professional training um, consultancy, that kind of of thing in uh, Abidjan, Ivory Coast, which is a Francophone country um, because there weren't a lot of American firms operating there. I ended up getting a lot of really interesting contracts for the, for the company and started making money, doing things I had no business doing, running research, market research, and even training epidemiologists. I mean, I was an English major. <laughs> so, I mean, I did all these things that I had no right to do, but I did them well because I did my homework and figured it out and had quite a large team working with me and made every managerial mistake known to man, probably in the first couple of years I was running those companies. Um, I think I could have invented the fail fast thing back in 1980. <laughs> when I was doing that, I was failing fast, um, just getting over it and moving on all the time. So I had the first company, then I had two or three other companies there. 
we got into some really interesting contracts with American firms. I started a nonprofit to get contracts that my for-profit wasn't eligible for. <laughs> and soon I found myself in the, the nonprofit social marketing for public health field hmm. um, with a subcontract to a, a joint venture with a U.S.-based uh, company that worked in like 70 different countries at the time. So then my career became running their programs in different countries. Hmm. Hmm. Was that primarily in Africa or was it? In the beginning, it was in Africa. So I lived in Africa for 15 years, all in Abidjan. And then um, I moved with this company to Pakistan. Hmm. And from Pakistan, I moved to India. And then I stayed in India. So I was working on the subcontinent there um, until I moved to the U.S., really. Hmm. Um, but my last 12 years, um, I left uh, nine-to-five jobs and became, with a few interruptions for studying the Gurdjieff work of a couple years, I became a consultant um, I, I guess you could call it leadership development, but it was more like they would send me to one or of three companies would send me to a country platform that was having severe difficulties. Um, either, I mean, for whatever reasons, usually multiple and too complicated for the people in the head office to figure out. So they would send me there. Um, I would be the acting or interim director, country director. And I would hire and fire and reorganize and renegotiate contracts and deal with the lawyers and the fallout and the hmm. and troubleshoot it and fix it and then hand it off. And that I loved. I loved. I thrived on fixing problems um, and helping the local teams then build strategic confidence so they could. Uh, and that's where I loved it. That's what I actually did best was mentor local teams, um, show them they could count on themselves, teach them strategic skills so that when any new person would come in, they could say, this is why we're doing what we're doing. Um, so that really, I don't know how to describe that. Yeah. Well, well, I, I think you, <clears throat> I mean, yeah, I think you've said in, in some of your written bios, like uh, organizational transformation, and, and those are those are kind of business buzzwords that are popular these days. But it make it makes a lot of. I, I have a feel for what that means, or I just because I work in a corporate environment, I know how things can go wrong with teams, and and how usually management doesn't really have a perspective to come in and really see that so clearly, because in some ways they're part of the milieu that give it, <laughs> gives rise to the problems. Yeah, organizational culture. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is this is really. I I, I don't know. How this will land with you, but but what was coming up in my mind as you were describing this um, fix-it um, proclivity that that you have developed very strongly. <laughs> Still have. Had. had. <laughs> One of the branches I'm yeah. trying to prune. Yeah, I, I understand, but 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 what occurs to me is is um, you know some of the stories that Gurdjieff tells about himself, about his, I mean, it wasn't with people management, 
it was with stuff with things with and and um and you know if Gurdjieff had had pride in something one gets the impression reading these things that that he might have had some pride in in his capacity to take any broken object and restore it to function so um uh but the it, it, but with doing it with people with teams as you say or mentoring individuals um in the way that you're describing sounds not entirely unlike that um um uh, thing that Gurdjieff was doing and i don't know if you've thought about it that way um you know when we read when i read um it's hard not to get those arrogant heroic resonance things oh i could be like that or i did this and that was a little like that so of course i've had those and stuffed them as fast as i could <laughs> uh, and and you know with with people i i think that i did used to see people the way that i saw situations um mm. that they were broken or uh, they needed fixing. Ah, uh, okay. And and I'm I'm pleased that I don't see that. I don't see people that way anymore. Got it. <laughs> well, so so you mentioned in this uh, career trajectory a few pauses for uh, doing work in the uh, uh, Gurdjieff tradition. So, how did a the per, the kind of person you were describing? Uh, is so busy typically that there isn't space for um, a kind of inquiry or a, a spacious interior inquiry. So how did the need for that begin to arise or what was, how did you encounter elements of the work uh, along this uh, trajectory you've been describing? Yeah, I've given that a lot of thought over the years. Um, and I'm going to go back to your original question because, um, in my early teens or adolescence, uh, the whole question of, of higher power or religion or, um, connectedness to something bigger. Uh, became a really overpowering chapter in my in my life. I I explored with rapaciousness every possible faith I could come to, and ultimately I rejected all of them um, because I was so critical of institutional anything. I was in the Chicago area, so we had access to. Everything, including the Baha'i, the Buddhist temples, um, Islam, of course, uh, everything, and Christianity. All I wanted to do in the Episcopalian church was sing in the choir and the rest, just a bunch of hypocrisy. So as that little footnote, I came across a woman who was teaching meditation in Delhi, in New Delhi, India. And I, of course, wasn't interested in meditation. I had tried it once. I, <laughs> uh, I had completely ruined the group experience um, because I started laughing in the middle of it. I was not cut out to be a meditator. There was just no doubt in my mind. However, 
this woman was offering um, something called dynamic meditations in the early morning. So I could get to her place by seven in the morning, which would let me beat the traffic Hmm. into New Delhi. And then it was not too far from my office. So I could more efficiently get to my office ahead of my whole team and see who everybody else, when they were coming in. So, so it actually fit into the, uh, your, uh, um, Ms. Efficiency. Um, Absolutely. What, a, what a happy coincidence. Right. What a happy coincidence. And my housemate, my housemate was going in. And, uh, so I said, we'll carpool, we'll go in together. And that was how I met, um, this most amazing woman named Akash, Akash Dharmaraj, who, later became pretty much everything in my spiritual path. Um, We had a very rocky beginning, of course, because everything I now also understand that everything that's really going to be good for me um, at a spiritual level, a deeper essence level, my personality resists with all its force. So, I, you know, I went kicking and screaming into almost everything that was ever good for me. Um, so that's it. I met this woman and it started a 20, close to 20 year journey. So, but there was an impulse or there was a something, you know, what's interesting to me is like the personality you're describing seems bulletproof, but clearly there was something that, yeah. A yearning that was in there. And, and I'm interested in what that, that sensitivity was that knew that there was another possibility available. Yeah. Um, again, it took, you know, major shock uh, for me to get through that bulletproof armor. And that came in the form of, um, again, I'd been working, I'd been attending sessions with Akash, these group sessions. They were interesting and I stayed on the fringe with it. How many people just out of curiosity would, would come to these? Um, you know, she had, she did all sorts of things. She was doing these meditations. She was doing, um, transactional analysis. She was teaching TA. She was teaching Reiki. She was teaching, um, all sorts of things. And she had just begun to teach the movements. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I basically said no to each of those. And somehow she dragged me into them, you know, working around my schedule and things like that. But honestly, the the armor didn't crack until um, my father passed away. He had a stroke. He was in Chicago. My mom had died previously. I had, of course, not had time to do any of the grieving that would have been healthy because you know, that was for other weaker human beings. Um, so I found myself... Um, leaving my two kids in Delhi, who were by then like maybe 10 and 14, um, and and the company that I had grown from at that point, 150 to about 1,500 employees. <laughs> and I uh, ended up in Chicago you know, dealing with the funeral and selling the car and the house and all that kind of stuff for a month, did it all in a month, incredibly efficient, came back to Delhi and uh, was really having a breakdown. And 
it had reached the limit and I didn't even recognize it. I, I refused to recognize it. So I went to a, you know, a doctor and I said, you know, I'm having this pain or I'm having this. And they kept saying, no, there's nothing. And um, so I finally called up Akash, who was a psych, he, she was Delhi's leading psychotherapist, but you know, I didn't need therapy. So I called her up and I asked her if she would be willing to have one session with me because things just weren't working right. My hand was shaking, et cetera. And the doctor said nothing was wrong. So that began my journey. And, you know, the crack, the crack happened right then. Um, I basically, she just took one look at me, asked me a few questions about myself. I snapped. Why do you need to know? Just fix me. Um, <laughs> she put me down on the floor and she said, you know, this is really unconventional, but can I just give you some Reiki? I said, what the hell is that? She goes, just shut up. And um, that's, that's just kind of how it all started. And, and then the crack got wider and wider and wider and it never closed up again. And my perspective on life changed. I recognized the, the, the young, more, vulnerable, more innocent um, essence that was, that was way underground. And then, and then I found that of course I needed a spiritual path that wasn't um, impractical or gooey or sentimental. Those kinds of things would never have, have worked. And so I found that, um, the Gurdjieff path, uh, which is believe nothing, experiment, uh, see for yourself, figure it out, go ahead and argue. That really suited me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, there was just something. Um, my heart just had actually had had probably cracked open, but I wouldn't allow it uh, when I was back in Pakistan with um, the music of the Sufis in the subcontinent, which they call Kabbalah. And uh, I was absolutely entranced and mesmerized and didn't really understand why and didn't really care to understand why. So I was simultaneously uh, moving along a Sufi path, but not an institutional Sufi path. Um, Well, yeah, I was I was interested in that because um, was Akasha besides using the movements was she also using the um, uh, Gurdjieff uh, modality or language as part of the uh, teaching? You know, it was interesting because she had done the readings um, on her own, you know, a long time ago, um, but there was no group, there was nobody to talk to him about it, so she started teaching the ideas, but from a place of not really completely understanding them. So we were encouraged to learn it together. Mm-hmm. So we worked um, primarily, I mean, she had us read the Uspensky texts, but we worked primarily with nickel mm-hmm. because psychotherapy and, and uh, we read Beelzebub out loud a lot. And then when, um, Jean de Salzman's work came out. We worked with that also. So, so I'm interested uh, in the biography about Akash. There's an interesting backstory of uh, her engaging with a 
very unassuming Sufi teacher who was uh, the gardener next door. And I'm interested if you could, if you know much about that, if you could speak to that, partly because uh, I, I read the Irina Tweedy biography, Daughter of Fire, and I just had this feeling like there was maybe some uh, uh, resonance there. As I was yeah, I mean, I loved that book, by the way. And there was, I think there is some resonance um, and a thread through that, although the Naqshbandi um, method, of course, is that literally fire transmission. Um, Akasha's story was was wonderful. The The most interesting thing about it is that she couldn't tell anybody about it. For 40 years, she hmm. kept it a secret. She was told by her faith that this was her own work. Um, it was it was inner work. He would send um, little nuggets of instructions with the Kashmiri carpet and scarf salesman that would visit Delhi <laughs> from the north periodically. Oh my God, that sounds pre twentieth century. <laughs> Wonderful. So yeah, so the story was that she was a newly a newlywed with a husband in the military, and she was very young. She just finished um, university, so she's probably 21. Or nine. She was young. She was probably 20. And uh, her husband was away at the front, but she was in Srinagar, which is uh, the capital up in Kashmir. And she was, for the first time, tending her own little home and was very proud of it. She came from, you know, upper middle class, so she was very proper and wore her sari and sometimes her shalwar kameez and was out working in the garden. And there was the Mali or the garden next door. And she very politely um, asked him uh, how to help her with the strawberries and what to feed her goat. And they developed a little bit of a, a professional relationship around those issues. And one day he invited her to his home for coffee or tea, which was a it's a legitimate thing. Mm -hmm. um, so she got all dressed up, but not too glitzy because she didn't want to put his poor family to shame. She was very careful about it. Um, and she went and she, you know, they, he had given her an address, you know, addresses over there are, you know, take the second right at the, at the bakery and then that kind of address. But she had this address and she showed up at a houseboat. <laughs> on the on the river hmm. and so somebody saw her and invited her onto the boat and she realized she didn't actually know the molly's name she only called him molly gardner molly g sir gardner so she asked for sir gardner and she was led through this long labyrinthine path into this huge room covered with carpets with all these men and women sitting around it in a circle. And at the head of that circle was the Mali. And it turned out he was the most important sheikh of that particular Sufi lineage in Kashmir. Hmm. And so she, you know, he invited her to sit down. She realized what was going on after the meeting. He invited her to come back and she said, I couldn't possibly, my Hindu parents would disown me let alone my husband. And so he said, well, that's okay. It's just, just for you. Um, so that was 
her entry into the world of of Sufism. Hmm. And so that that whole thing about not being public about what is most important to your inner nature is something that she very much transmitted to me. Uh, yeah, that so then fast forward when you began to work with her. Uh, she didn't tell any of us. She didn't tell any of us that she had this practice. But, you know, in hindsight, you can see how her Sufi practices and understanding and real opening that she had was, of course, you know, we teach who we are. Right. And the transmission from her is just was incredible. But we didn't know that it was coming from anything relating to the Sufi work. So then I, after I retired for the first of, I don't know, four times, maybe um, in 2006, I decided to go on a, a trip to the desert in the Sahara with a friend. And we we walked in the desert for 10 days. And the Bedouin leaders of this group um, turned out to be Sufis and um, students of Neil Douglas Klotz. <laughs> That's too funny. <laughs> and, uh, we will we will be having him on again. <laughs> so I had just gotten I, again. Not that I understood anything about Sufism or even thought that I had any. It just one day a book had jumped off the shelf with me in Ann, in Ann Arbor into my hands, and it was. Neil Douglas Klotz was one of his first books about the the Sufi book of prayer, mm-hmm. 99 Wazifas. And I was carrying it on that trip because I don't know why I was carrying it. And anyway, the group leader got a hold of, saw me with the book and said, where did you get that? This I didn't even know it was published yet. And, and so anyway, by the end of that trip, he had already communicated with Neil Douglas Klotz and asked him, if he would admit me as one of his students without asking me, but just saying, I think here's somebody that needs to come work with you. And so he offered this to me at the end of the trip because he had gotten a confirmation. And so I went back to Delhi and I told Akash, Hey, I want to go study with this Sufi guy whose name, who wrote this book that I showed you. And she looked at me and she said, don't go. And Akash never said, don't do something or do something. She never gave advice and was never that directive. What are you talking about? And she said, I'll teach you. You want to learn about Sufism? I'll teach you. And I said, how can you teach me? I mean, you're, you've taught me so much. You're, you're lovely. You're just a wonderful human being. You've taught me everything I know. But how can you teach me about Sufism? She goes, just trust me. I'll teach you when the time is right. And so, I, you know, okay, I didn't go. And a year and a half later, she had obtained permission from her sheikh to come out of the closet. And uh, she started teaching. Not just with you, but with uh, others as well. Yeah, she told one of her daughters first, and then she told me, and then she told the group. And then we started working. Hmm. So how did that, I mean, it's a melange that uh, of um, practices and practice that, from, from your description so far, at least, that, that she was teaching, how did, the, how did the Sufi part of that land 
and integrate with these other modalities, fourth way, et cetera. Yeah. So the first, the first thing that I'll, I'll say is that she was so careful to not mélanger, to not mix them. Mm-hmm. Okay. She, she would speak about them separately. She wouldn't let us mix them up. She wouldn't, if we're working in TA, she wouldn't let us bring in Gurdjieff work about personality in essence. If we're mm. working in Gurdjieff, we weren't allowed to talk about inner child or whatever. Working with the Sufi work, we were working with energies and, and, and different movements. So I, of course, with this synthetic mind of troubleshooting was constantly, you know, wanting to, to, to see how they all fit together. Mm -hmm. And um, so for several years, I think she, I mean, she really saw where I was going. So she made sure that I had solid foundations in each of them. And then she said, okay, for one of your, uh, we did like assign me a thesis or some course that she invented. Um, And, and it was to compare and contrast different different elements of in first case was the Gurdjieff work and the transactional analysis. And then, you know, once she, I mean, for one thing, I think she was using me. I mean, we were working together. We were creating things together by then. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I do think that within me, there's, there is a melange and I, and I call it the lineage. Now mm-hmm. I call that the Akhaldan's lineage, which means that we have certain tools and <clears throat> perspectives um, that we come from. Uh, and there are underlying things. Um, compassion. Where does that come from? It comes from all of them. Um, and so when we're working with groups and individuals, that's, if compassion isn't there, we can't start anything. Um, so, so I'm, 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 I'm very struck by this history that you're accounting. Um, my understanding is that, um, as you, as you were describing, uh, in the Sufi tradition, you would have to get permission to teach or to pass on or to admit people to, to a lineage, um, uh, the, uh, classic fourth way, um, foundation. It has lots of barriers to entrance, um, et cetera, et cetera. And yet in the 20th and 21st centuries, it seems to me that in a way, I'm certainly not the first person to observe this that the the barriers that used to be partly perhaps a manifestation of the fact that um, the world was not connected literally with people moving around the world in the ways that have become common now that you describe in your own your own biography for you um so, so how uh, it's been an ongoing meditation for me to understand how 
the apparent melange of certainly writings about spiritual practice, but then also actual legitimate inherited practices get understood. So this, this strikes me as a, as a very interesting topical area. And you have, from what you've said, some pretty unusual um, experience with that. Is that. Have you come to any, any sort of at least tentative conclusions about how this time in human history may, may differ from some previous eras, even in the, uh, you know, in um, Spain in the Middle Ages, where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam had, had more interface in certain cities and certain places, doesn't seem to be nearly as um, a form for circulate or an arena for circulation of ideas about practices, actual differing practices. Um, it's a big question, and I'm just sort of sketching the outlines of stuff that I've long uh, contemplated, and others as well, of course. Do you have anything that you would that you would? Any insights about this? Because your experience is quite different than anyone else's I've heard. Wow. The, the most true thing you said is that this is a, a really big question. Um, <laughs> there were a, a couple of different parts of that that were just popping through when I was listening to you. And, um, you know, you started with the, the sort of watchdog aspect or the door holder doorkeeper aspect of of practices whether they're sufi or gurdjieffian or or other secret societies mm-hmm. so i've had a couple of thoughts about that over the over the time first was it came when the the movements of course in the gurdjieff work are something that the the lineage that comes from the foundation holds pretty close to their chest, um, deeming that people need to be of a certain level before they see the movements. Um, And then there was the Bennett lineage with most of us who learned the movements outside of the foundation can credit the Bennett lineage with, with that opening. And so we had a lot of discussions about what's appropriate. I mean, and we came, Akash and I and others came to the conclusion that, that it's really hard to keep the lid on things and practices these days anyway, number one. And two, I think it came more from her Sufi side. She had a firm belief that the secrets will protect themselves. Mm-hmm. In other words, if somebody is presented with this most beautiful, glorious truth, if they're not of a level to understand it, they won't. Right. And so telling them the secret is harmless. There is there is um, a consideration, I, I guess I've, I've heard and kind of respect that there is a risk of, and we see this in, a lot of uh, modern context where someone can uh, co-opt uh, a series of practices and 
claim them as an claim themselves as an authentic source, but they don't necessarily have the depth of the training or the uh, uh, integrity to actually communicate or convey the, the nature of those teachings. And that that's a that's a downside, but it's, it's a little bit like uh, the issues we have with uh, the internet in general, which is there's some, there's some, it's a beautiful means of transmitting information and there's a ton of noise that is, uh, obscures everything. And I mean, that's such a great, um, really important point because when I was undergoing what we called fourth way facilitator training, um, it went on for years. But that that was with Akash, right? That was with Akash. And she kept she kept telling us, no, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. I'm not going to sanction your teaching yet. You're not there yet for various reasons, each one individual. And we would be devastated time and time again. Um, and we would see all these other newly minted teachers from other people going to one workshop and going out and teaching the movements. And we go, but, but, but. And she would say, okay, people will get the teachers they need at the right time. And, you know, just like with the Internet, our job as human beings because it becomes one of discernment. I mean, who, I mean, who is going to be the one to say this person can teach and this person can't teach? We're, we're way beyond being able to tell somebody they can't teach. Um, I know people that that read a couple chapters in Uspensky and go out and give lectures on the Gurdjieff method. Okay. That's a pretty extreme example, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my I God. <laughs> I know people like that. <clears throat> wow. Okay. And you know what? Who am I to say you can't do that? You don't understand oh. well enough. Right? I, was, I, was, I was thinking uh, this, this sort of leads me to this realm of contemplation that's come up for me recently about some of these new AI tools like the uh, chat GPT that's out because myself and friends have played around with like asking esoteric questions and looking at the, uh, the responses that come out of these automated systems, these pattern recognition systems. And there's this contrast or this, uh, uh, that's interesting. Like you'll, you'll read it and there's a flatness to it. Um, you know, one way of expressing that is that it sounds like a good BSer. <clears throat> you know, but but I've, I, it, it's a, been an occasion for me to look at you know the differences of uh, like in music, you'll see a difference between uh, a profound artist and someone who's technically proficient. And there's an ineffable quality that's different that uh, unless you're really, really, really well trained, it's hard to put your finger on it. You can't really articulate it, but you know, you feel it. There's something in your heart that's different than uh, in uh, the more mechanistic performance. It's true with the products of AI versus something that's written with intention. It's true with food. You know, if, if, if someone makes makes a dinner for you versus a robot in a kiosk in a, uh, you know, uh, public you know airport or something like that preparing something, it's very different. And so there are these these realms of difference that have this ineffable something that the more sensitive one is, the more one's tastes run towards that. And 
the less sensitive we are, the more we can't actually see a difference. And I think that holds true for lines of work or lines of spiritual work. And I think that that maybe is in a sense to say that people find the teacher they need. They find the teacher that they're able to see at the time. And if there's a, a yearning within for something more, they almost necessarily will become attracted to that. I totally a hundred percent agree. And maybe those early chat generated things will move them to the next step where they'll look for another teacher. And if they hadn't read it, well, they wouldn't do it. So, and I, and I think that ineffable something that you're talking about, whether it's in art or in a, in a teaching and not necessarily a formal teaching, but I call that transmission. Mm. And I, I feel it when I'm in the presence of real teachers, and I'm, I'm sure the two of you have also. Um, and I don't, I don't think that it can be taught. Um, there's, a, there's a type of connection that, that gets established between life forms, not just humans. And there's a communication that is without words, therefore ineffable because we really think we can only understand what we can articulate with words. Um, yeah. And I think that that's, I think all true teachings when we get past information and knowledge require transmission. So my teacher used to call that a certain slippery something. There you go. A, a phrase I, I've always uh, appreciated, but um but I want to get back to to the uh, gatekeeper um, discussion um, uh, a moment ago, and and so it seems to me that that th there are different. I mean, people, as we've just been discussing, people can can learn, can absorb what they can absorb at a given time, and that that is going to be different hopefully, than what they can later learn and absorb. So um, um, so you were just describing Akash essentially being a gatekeeper to be able to teach, to be able to manifest that certain slippery something. That's a whole different level than at first I... Um, I was thinking about at least when I when I asked you the question, the part of which you interpreted as being about gatekeeping. So there's admission to the techia. There's admission to the you know whatever form um, the teaching takes, and then there's acknowledgement of a capacity to manifest that certain slippery something. And I don't. I mean, I, my own view is that is is that second one is still a useful um, realm in which gatekeeping can play a role in just the way that you were describing Akash doing with you and I guess your fellow practitioners. And so, first, I want I want to uh, invite you to opine on that. 
point. But also then you you mentioned that there was a second thing that arose when I asked the question earlier. So if you could then go to that point, I, I, I'm very curious to hear what you have to say. It's a good thing I wrote it down or I would have forgotten. So about the the gatekeeping um you know, with the example I gave that we were seeing all these other people going out and teaching and we were not allowed to, mm-hmm. I mean, nobody, I mean, nobody would have stopped me, right? No would stop me. So it was, it was more, again, an individual, an individual commitment. Um, if, if we were to get her blessing, cause that's really all it, amounted to, there was no certificate, right? right. you know, no official election to some group that didn't exist. (laughs) There was no award ceremony, you know, Um, but if we were to get her blessing, um, (laughs) what it really came down to in the end was knowing that we ourselves were ready. Sure. Um, So gatekeeping, yeah, she held our feet to the fire. Um, she, she helped create the space of, I, I maybe call it a sacred space, um, of responsibility yeah. and accountability. And therefore we were really the only ones that could judge. Um, we didn't understand that of course, until we did. So, of course. Uh, so that was the first, that was my opining. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one of the other things that came up, but the one that I wrote down was you were talking about specific practices and sort of initiation into specific practices, um, as being part of all this gatekeeping and thing like that. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I jumped to the, the Sufi story that was in that book by Idris Shah. Um, I can't remember the title, of course. Um, but it talks about, practices and what works for one person then becomes what they teach because it worked for them. And um, this is very much prevalent in the Gurdjieff world in most of the lineages that I've seen. And certainly in the different types of Buddhism that I've come across, you know, these are things that are passed down, um, through the lineages. And, and so there, there must be something really important about them. But the Sufi story was brilliant because there were these three people that came to the, I don't remember who we came, who they came to, um, but they longed to know the truth. They longed to know the truth, each of them. And they worked diligently and they did, they just exhausted every possibility. Maybe just say that they went to this angel and they said, will you teach me how to reach the truth? And he gave each one of them a different practice. And they then diligently applied this practice until they became enlightened. And then people started asking them, how did you become enlightened? And so they taught their practice to their followers, um, none of whom became enlightened and who fought with the followers of the other 
<laughs> oh, oh, humanity. <laughs> I guess, you know, my experience of this melange of, of experience, experiential practices that I've been gifted with from, from my teacher mm-hmm. that include all sorts of energy work, um, running energy around the sensation exercises from both the Gurdjieff work and, and the way that Bennett took him even further. Um, yeah, I mean, I've just got, you're right. I've got this melange of different tools and what I, huh. I use most of them when I'm teaching, um, but I kind of wait to see which which is required and when. Mm-hmm. And I say most of them because, it, again, I'm holding back because of the the Sufi ones because she presented them to me in secret as a form of initiation, and she had told me that she had to ask permission to be able to do said initiations mm-hmm. um, and she died. So I haven't asked her. So I use watered down versions of some of those practices, the way that she did with us before she had permission. Interesting. But were you to seek permission? Uh, how would you do that now? You know, yeah, I think in a little bit longer, I'm going to trust my connection to, um, different dimensions and I'll just ask her. Yeah. There you go. I was thinking dreams. You're, uh, you know, you're opening to dream as you were talking about earlier, but anyway, um, thank you. That's, that's, that's a very, um, clear, interesting and coherent answer. And there is no one thing that's right for all, all that, all the, uh, methodologies, techniques, uh, lineages that, that you've been exposed to and use to help people. I, 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 it does raise a question because I, I, I've explored a number of different modalities besides the basic fourth way practice. Um, and, and I think as Rob probably told you, even now I'm uh, working with a mentor in uh, an African divinatory tradition that comes out of Dagara land. <laughs> that you have some familiarity with. And although it's, it's been transposed quite a bit uh, into the, the Western world, which doesn't seem to be at odds with that tradition. But I guess I, there's a few things that come out for me that I would call basics that seem to almost be universal and self-observation uh, and self-remembering as sort of modalities seem to be articulated in different ways. And it's almost like if I, you know, if I'm mathematical about it and try to like a a factor, a prime number down to its elements, you know, I get uh, uh, those two practices and then whatever experience you're having, whatever experiential dimension is presenting itself, whether it's energy work, whether it's service work, whether it's, uh, 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 movement work in the in the body the what as long as uh, 
your presence is there and can be present in a certain kind of way to what's arising, then the, there's a transformational possibility in the practice. And if that presence isn't there, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's, it's, it, there's not really a transformational uh, possibility there. So do you, do you see something like, like, is there, is there something that you would, um, distill down that is a common element like I was describing? Do you see it that way or do you see it uh, differently? Oh, no, I completely see it that way. Um, I hate to use, I certainly don't want to use the word reductionist, but but distillation is really good. Um, and I, yeah, I'm just getting simpler and simpler in, in my understanding of the world. I mean, I I think self-observation and I mean, you can't have self-observation without self-remembering or vice versa. I mean, you need them both. It doesn't do anything to observe without, without knowing that there's something that's doing the observing. Um, Therefore the essential being nature of I. Um, And that is, that's absolutely common. I can't think of a single practice that, that works without self-remembering and self-observation. They're useless. And then, and then what, what does one do with the initial information? And then after a while knowledge that one gathers from this practice of self-observation and self-remembering. What do I do with it? And, and so, and so for me, that's the next piece of the distillation process, which, which is that we, I, if I see all of that, it is to become cleaner, clearer, emptier of all the noise. Does that, do you think that happens? You know, then this is, this is where language starts to be uh, tricky because, uh, doing implies a certain kind of agency and and yet the process that we're talking about to me almost almost feels like a a metabolic process that when these elements of a certain kind of presence are active in the face of the various eyes that arise at the personality level that a metabolic process or a digestion naturally takes place. And it's not, I, I no more do it than I digest my dinner. I, I do have to eat the dinner. <laughs> I, so there's an action there, but I'm not, but I don't, I'm not digesting it. Yeah. And, that, and that. Yeah. Thanks for, you know, stomping on my not being very clear. Um, I was jumping a couple of levels ahead which again is another one of my prime defects. So, you know, if I, if I observe and, and allow the digestion and the integration and I have my three centers working harmoniously, what is that for? I guess that's where I was going. And then I use, like, I use words like doing, which are not what I, should have used. Right, I, I understood that. I, that's, I, I'm, I, that's why I was just trying to clarify, uh, 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 just just to make sure I was tracking. Um, so then, so then, to your question, uh, when that, uh, let's say that me- 
metabolic process is uh, matured, uh, or maybe the fruit is ripened or something like that, then what happens? Uh, what 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 is what is that for? Yeah. And do, do you do you is that a um, a question that you just hold as a interesting point of reflection, or do you have a do you have conclusions that? Uh, uh... I have I have a couple of a couple of things that I'm still theoretical about, but have been putting into practice, which is that I don't think I will ever be completely aligned or completely ripe, but there are moments where there's a little bit of a blueberry sized thing. It comes ripe, you know, and And I cannot believe that I was put here on this earth just to integrate my centers and become (laughs) enlightened. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm food for the moon anyway. But, I mean, if I'm not of service, then why, why bother being born? So when I get those ripe blueberries that come from at least a momentary and quick integration and there's some fruit that gets produced into that, it needs to be not thrown away. It needs to be put in service to something. And, and of course, in the Gurdjieff work, that's will, right? Not personal will, but higher will. And um, I have to believe that even occasional opening to something higher that I can't understand will allow that fruit to be put to good use. And then I go back and I work some more and then maybe a strawberry comes out next. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, (laughs) we all have fruit and we, we need to nourish the world with it. Everything eats everything else. Um, and and uh, I, I haven't found an exception to that one yet. So um, so yes, it's it's certainly the quality of fruit that we produce, um, by which I I, I I I I was going to the biblical quote um, about judging, um, but but I don't like that word so much here. It's a certain slippery something when you see someone nourished by fruit that you have had a partial hand in producing because it's never just us, right? And um, so, so I was, uh, as you were speaking earlier, I was uh, reflecting on, there's a book I'm reading. We're going to do another one of these podcast interviews next week with a, a, a gentleman who uses um, non-dual language to um, frame the teaching he offers. And um, I, I am not a fan. I, I am not instinctually a fan of non-dual language. I've seen it misused terribly to, um, to manipulate people to feel less than they could be. Um, and it's not a pretty thing. On the other hand, I'm, uh, as I, I'm, you know, pretty early in this guy's book. And, um, 
And then he comes across, he, he writes a passage, which is, which is essentially to get back to the earlier point, um, a discussion of the necessity, number one, of something like self-observation. Uh, number two, shortly thereafter, a passage about how it's not just the language. You can't just read a book and, uh, and go anywhere with it. You actually need a teacher. And that's, uh, it's, it's this wonderful irony when, when people are talking about it's all one, but you need somebody else, darn it, apparently. <laughs> Even this non-dual fellow um, who uses the, the non-dual language I, I'm beginning to appreciate um, just to remind people about certain aspects of the act of mechanically judging, mechanically reacting to our experiences. So... Um, so I don't know how this lands with you. I don't know how familiar with, for example, the non-dual, some of the non-dual language is. I don't know if that's one of the uh, um, perspectives that you that you tasted along the way, but I'd be surprised if you haven't, at least a little bit, given your um, your wide experience. So how how does that um, how does that land with you, or how has it landed with you if it has in the past? Huh. <sighs> First, first comment is that non-dual language has always seemed oxymoronic to me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> and yet, I've, I've been pondering um, this for several very clearly several years now. Um, I've been working with the concepts of spiral dynamics and uh, different levels of consciousness, um, some of which don't even understand or seem to not understand non-duality. Um, and I, I, I need to read the book you're reading, so you will give me that title at some point, or I will listen to the podcast. Um, but I did have the experience of being in a, on, a, on a call with um, Hamid Ali Almas. Mm-hmm. Okay. And during the call, I felt very clearly that he transmitted a non-dual space. Hmm. Um, and he was fairly effective at putting words to it. Um and I've been working with the idea of object relations and, you know, this whole, you know, it's just out of psychology and understanding how we build this through our childhood and then how we need to lose it if we're going to get into a non-dual space. I've been grappling with it for quite a while. But what Almas said, when somebody said, but how do you, I mean, how do you live in the world from this non-dual place? And he said, well... My heart, he didn't say it that way. He, says, he said his perspective is non-dual and he sees all as one and he sees himself as part of that one. And at the same time, the keys in his pocket are to his own house and his own car. That's a nice, that's a nice way to say it. Yeah. I like that. 
so maybe that's as far as I've gotten. Um, I was working with um, the Enneagram of personality, which, of course, I shouldn't admit to Gifians, <laughs> but I find that when it comes to describing the possibility of non-dual understanding at the different points, nine different points, it's kind of like the wazifas of the Sufis saying that there are nine different qualities of the heart that humans can have, hmm. do have out of an infinite number. But just to understand the 99 would be pretty cool, you know, and they're all non-dual, by the way. Um, so putting them into nine points on the Enneagram, there's nothing wrong with that. If we could actually embody, embrace, um, live from those nine virtue points, that would be pretty cool. So I was working with those nine and created uh, movements that would elicit in some way you know, if, if I hold the right thoughts and the right feeling space and then bring in these movements and then use them to move through space from one to four to two to eight to five to seven and keep going around and then nine, three, six. Um, and so I do a lot of work with that personally in my own space on my own Enneagram. Um, I don't know what will come of it. Well, it's, it's, I mean, I, I, this is fascinating. Uh, uh, the the use of different points of being, I, I think, uh, almost calls it uh, uh, essence, you know, qualities of essence. And I've uh, studied a lot of the uh, the Western uh, Hermetic formulations of Kabbalah, and so you have sephiroth that are effectively energetic points that you can locate in the body or you can locate spatially. And I, I tend to look at these things from the eye of a mathematician, which is if you have this space, you can create a coordinate system and it can be an X, Y, Z coordinate system. It can be a, uh, 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 polar coordinate system. It can be, um, a um, cylindrical coordinate system. There's different ways. And, and the coordinate system that you use has more to do with the problem you're trying to solve and the degree to which it makes it easier to do the transformations necessary to solve the problem. And that's an analogy, but it's it, in a way it's like, um, you know, to the extent that I find these tools useful, I, th I, I, I love them just, just like I uh, love the divinatory practice from the uh, Dagra tradition but it's like a coordinate system and I can enter into it fully and, and the, the practice, and it's, I, I wouldn't say I have entered into it fully, but the intention is to enter into it as fully as possible, but then also to be able to uh, exit from it too, because it, it does, this, it, it, it's a, uh, it does a certain thing. It's like, it's like making a meal, you know, it's like a particular way of expression. But when we essentialize these things and say, oh, there's there's exactly nine uh, facets of essence, then, then I think we start to run into problems because we start to create a something when that starts to get, gather a kind of weight and holds can hold things down. So the, so the way that you're describing it, I, I, 
I appreciate. And that, and that's partly gets back to this question of how do we negotiate all of these different modalities? And it seems like the answer is lightly <laughs> or <laughs> we, we negotiate them lightly and we, and with appreciation and with gratitude, but, uh, not with a essentializing nature, because I think, I think that's, to me, that's where non-duality comes in is that it's non-dual if everything can be true at once. Um, it's dual, uh, when suddenly this is true and this is not, and we start to create these more rigid structures. A hundred percent, a hundred percent agree with that. Um, and once again, back to my childhood, <laughs> I feel that that's the thread. Um, I resisted. I found something wrong with every system, religion, faith, practice that said this is the only right way. Yeah, yeah. I, I just couldn't. I couldn't be there. I couldn't be there at age ten. I said, yeah, this is a good way, but what about the people that are doing that over there? Oh no, they're doomed to hell. No. <laughs> so I think I think that what you said is beautiful that we 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 hold these lightly and then the idea of going into a non-dual space that you said I think you were referring to making sure you can get out again um I think that is why I at least hold back um, I have a real existential knowing that if I jump in with both feet, I'm not coming back. Mm-hmm. So again, Almas's uh, remark might be useful for, for both of us, which is go ahead and jump in, but keep your keys in your pocket. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, this is, I was just going to ask you, uh, based on Stuart's, he used the word exit, I believe. And so um, I wonder, though, if as you're teaching now, and I, I want to get uh, a little further down the road here in our conversation back into um, what you have been doing with all this stuff um, that, you, that you received over the years um, currently in your life. But, but the point, first, first I want to uh, uh, just drill down a little bit further and ask you if if it's not true that you already know how to exit from one modality to the other, didn't you see it demonstrated by your teacher? And didn't, don't you think that that demonstration gifted you something that uh, you may not fully appreciate about exiting one modality it's, I, I like to use the, uh, the Levi-Strauss term, uh, bricoleur, a, a, a fix-it guy who, um, or gal who, who picks up a tool when it's needed to do one thing, one function, puts it down and picks up a different tool to complete, perhaps, the fix-it uh, problem. Ha, huh. so interesting. A um, couple of comments. Uh, to me, bricoleur has always been like jack of all trades and master of none. <laughs> <laughs> Good comeback. <laughs> Unless it's like Gurdjieff, who claimed to be a, 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 a jack of all trades. Um, 
And well, I, you know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I got, I got what you said. I'm, I'm, I'm using it in a particular way that, that I've, that I've tended to do, but um, I'm not, I'm not wedded to it. So, uh, so I like, I like that response, but go ahead. So that was the first one. The second was when, when Stuart said exit, I took it differently. Um, instead mm-hmm. of moving from one um, modality to another, mm-hmm. I took it as meaning going all in. Hmm. Um, going all the way into what the practice was intended to take us to. Um, okay. You know how the, the the Sufi poets talk about walking along the shore and getting the the hems of their robes wet, um, where Fana is really diving under and deeper under. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So I think that what I do, and maybe others, is go with a certain practice or even meditation or direction up to a certain point and then I pull back mm. and 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 there's a there's a song by Nora Jones do you know it's called toes <laughs> I don't know the song okay you'll have to look it up basically it describes that she said you know I walked a mile to the bank and I was ready to take the plunge but then <laughs> okay. I just sat on the bank, you know, and she goes and, and she, the, the chorus is my toes just touched the water. <laughs> that's nice. That's, uh, I, I appreciate that. Uh, and that, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, because that, I guess the question for me that, uh, comes up, uh, in relationship to this is always, uh, um, uh, I'll, I'll describe it by a, a cartoon I saw. It might have been Bizarro or something like that. There's uh, two monks sitting in a zendo. <clears throat> one of them turns to the other one and says, is this it or does something happen next? And the there's a question that always comes up with the uh, uh, practice is, is this it or does something happen next? Is what I have received from my practice, it, or does is something happen next? And then I have to ask, well, what do you want to have ne- happen next? Do you want an experience? If you have this experience, is that going to really fundamentally change the nature of who and what you are? Do you want to, you know, explode into a cosmos and uh, have, have this wonderful uh, uh, experience that tells you how wonderful you are? Or do you want to, you know, pull the keys out of your pocket and open the door. What, what, what's supposed to happen next? And, and that's a, that's actually a serious question. I mean, we, I, and I, it's interesting because I see this happen. We have friends, um, fourth way practitioners years and years, you know, really intelligent people. But then I see them experimenting with ayahuasca or uh, ketamine or something like that. And, um, it's not like I think that's good or bad or anything like that, but it also feels like there's a little element of uh, they want something to happen next. And so I don't, I don't, I'm offering this because I, I don't have an answer for this question uh, because it's like, if I grasp after experience, it seems like it's taking me away from this moment. 
And so the, even the grasping after it seems to be like a, uh, a seeking for, or, or a dissatisfaction. Whereas to be fully in this moment, to be a completely at peace. And I'm not saying I attained to this, uh, except maybe an occasional uh, peak experiences, but to a, a blueberry, a blueberry. Yeah. <laughs> so to be completely at peace in this moment, with whatever phenomenologically is presenting itself from that place, there wouldn't be this need for something next or, you know, something to happen next. So yeah, I'm giving, I'm saying this, I'm kind of circulating now. So I'm interested how, you, how this lands with you. Well, it's, it's it, right. I mean, you, before you talked about presence um, and, and, when I said, what do you do with it? You said, well, we're not here to do, which is true. Um, but then you just said, what do you do with it? You know, what is it for? So in other words, what's next? <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 yeah, that, but that's the question is like, I, I, if I ask, well, <laughs> then who's asking the question? Yeah. It's because it, it, there, there is, there is a, there is an experience. I, I, I I know from the conversation we're having that you you're very familiar with this where what the doing arises very naturally in response to the moment. So if you're with someone in uh, your community it's not it's not like you're sitting back here uh you know formulating uh what the right answer is it arises from your heart or it arises from this place of silence or this depth that is uh, you know, my experience of that is that, you know, it's like my work in that context is to get out of the way. You know, if I, if I get out of the way, then, and something moves through me, then the relief and the gratitude of having been able to do that is the reward for, you know, whatever uh, arises, but it's not, but it's like the, this, the psychological, experience is like getting out of the way or <laughs> and creating space. Does that make sense? Uh, completely. And I think, I think that's the aim of self-observation and, and self-remembering is to teach us how to get out of the way um, so that things can move through us and that we're not doing, and yet we're, I guess, I hate it. We're, we're the channel for whatever is coming through us and it couldn't come without us, but we're not doing it. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, we're aligning ourselves to a higher will now, whether that is an eye on a different scale uh, or something beyond us, it, it kind of doesn't matter because the person asking that question is out of the way. If, if you're, if you're doing it right. But I want to I want to take the uh, um, conversation back to this um, idea of jumping all in, mm-hmm. which um, I mean it, that's that theme threads through the conversation from the very beginning. It seems to me because you've described yourself as having a per, as having developed in your early in your life and throughout most of much of your adult life at least this capacity to jump all in to solve problems. 
and I don't know, uh, I, I can't speak to the quality um, of your engagement with your teacher, Akash, although I, I certainly have gotten lots of hints along the way from these, from what you've been saying. But it reminds me of my own jumping all the way in with my teacher. And, and one of the things many, I mean, he's, he's been deceased for almost a quarter century now. But one of the things I've come to hold about that is that, is that I don't have to jump into any new one particular thing. I'll return to my, my bricolure uh, metaphor. Um, I can grasp the tool precisely as it needs to be grasped to do the work it needs to do and that I am the channel for it to do and release it without having to jump into, you know, uh, I don't know, being able to only and, and particularly efficiently and effectively use that particular tool. So it seems to me that once having jumped all the way in, then that that um, one 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 uh, sign to me of people whose um, maturity in the work I can tr I feel I can trust. I mean, I I see it you know instantly usually when I when I meet someone um, is that I know that they've jumped in in some fashion. That was real and and immersive and thoroughgoing and that changed something in them so um i i will refrain from saying um what i'm inclined to say about what i'm seeing and what i've seen in in my relationship with you carol so far but i um i'd like you to respond uh, yourself to to these observations that I'm just offering. You know what I like best about the metaphor of a spiral mm -hmm. is that um, we get to jump in the waiting pool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We get to jump into the shower. We get to jump into the jacuzzi. We get to jump into deeper and deeper waters mm -hmm. um, as we mature. So I'm going to I'm going to acknowledge that I have jumped in okay. at Good. some level and that the deeper water is awaiting. <laughs> I'll, 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 I will happily go along with that description in general for uh, for serious yeah. uh, practitioners. I mean, at my uh, I, I study the shakuhachi, the Japanese bamboo flute and uh uh, my teacher's a, a master player, and he is absolutely a you know like considers himself a beginner. Uh, that he describes in performance that the emotional quality that he is really seeking is uh, you know 
there's both a joy, but there's also a sadness. And the sadness is that he can't, he's apologizing to the audience because he can't get to where he knows he can get to, but he's trying. It's very Japanese, but uh, <laughs> it is exceedingly Japanese, but it is a, there's a quality there to that, that, uh, that, um, that I hadn't really connected before in this conversation that, that we can aspire and we can't, we can do the best we can. And that may be incredibly profound, but it's, it's also useful to aspire and to have a humility that, uh, there's more to go or there's a, there's a, a depth as yet unplumbed that awaits and that the, the two feelings together provide an interesting kind of balance that may keep us from, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe, may, I, I, you know, keep us balanced in a, in a healthy way. I, I, the words are escaping me for anything more on that. Beautiful. And, and to Rob's point, um, even a bricoleur can get better and better at, at using the tools, yes. wielding the tools. And, and I think too, that there's, there are days when I pick up a tool and my state of being is different and it affects the skill with which I wield that tool. So once again, my, my responsibility to myself and to anybody that is around me is to keep observing and watching and remembering so that I can be in the highest level of being that I am capable of at this moment so that the tools will be more effective. That, that makes sense. Um, I'd like to take the conversation back to, because we sort of got, got away from your, uh, your personal journey. Um, uh, and, and I'd like to move it from the point, one point that you mentioned where you, you were not uh, given the blessing by Akash to teach, for example, you know, one, one thing or another. And um, from looking at uh, the your Akalden website, I know that there is teaching happening. So how did how uh, describe you know you you were so successful in the world with with these various different companies, the uh, effective mentoring and shaping leadership. Um, of people who benefited in the real world from, from, from your efforts. So to take us from that point onto where you started, I guess, this, uh, um, very, this varied, um, school that you've created essentially. Well, eventually Akash did give me her blessings and resolutely kicked me out of the nest um, mm. it took five years to get rid of me. <laughs> she, kept, well, she kept calling me back, you know, I'd go off to work and consult and then she'd say, where are you? I need you. I'd run back. Um, we did a lot of teaching together in the last years. Um, 
And she kept repeating, but why are you here? I said, because you called me. She goes, but you need to be on your own. You need to be teaching. And I said, but why should I teach if you're here? Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, I resolved with her pushing to find a place that I could establish myself so that I could have what she said I needed for my own growth selfishly. She said, if you are going to grow in your field, the way that the way that you are, you need students that are regular that you can work with over time, not just one offs. Um, And I said, but I reject that model. (laughs) And she said, I know you do. (laughs) Um, That's great. she, She did too in a way. I mean, she, you know, as a, as a good Indian, um, really had issues with the guru um, culture, hmm. what it did to both the, the, the leaders and the followers. So we had you know, many years of experience of discussing and, and experimenting around, around that issue. Um, anyway, she kicked me out and I looked for a place and I, I started with anywhere in the world because I didn't really want to be in the States. I didn't really know why. I just didn't like the politics or whatever. I, it wasn't. Anyway, I eventually ended up in the States because there was a thread through our many years of teaching that as much as I felt that I was open and a citizen of the world and that I could as easily connect to anyone of any nationality or language. Uh, the truth was the people drawn to me were people of my own culture the most. And so if I were to have an effective practice, um, might be in that place. Hmm. So I started looking for a place and found one and opened up for business and non-business because I also have been observing so many of my fellow practitioners that the need to sustain oneself based on these teachings leads to a lot of Mm. complications. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm fortunate enough that I realized if I worked a little bit more, so I took another job when I finished paying off the the space here um, and I no longer have any payments, I realized that I no longer need to charge um, to teach. Well, that doesn't mean I don't charge sometimes because some students need to pay. Yeah. Um, So I use the money to create like an informal scholarship fund for those who (laughs) can't. Um. And so I have a space here. I have a a dance hall and a meditation hall, and it's really hard to get enough people for a line. (laughs) To have six people here is really unusual, um, which is fine. I'll teach one. I'll work with one. Again, I use that word, but it's not really teaching. I want to meet people where they are, and I want to share, and it's about me as well. It's goes back to that selfish goal of my growth. Um, but when I grow, then the, the fruits pop out every once in a while. So you need people around to, to eat them. Well, that, I mean, that's a nice, um, you've said a couple things there that I, I want to just 
underscore and maybe I'm underscoring them because they're they're things that I, I've come to in, in things like the teaching role that the way you're describing it is wonderful it's it's a it's both a service and it's also a step uh, for your own work and so often uh, I see senior practitioners who oh I could never be a teacher you know they're they 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 hold back uh, because I mean it's a, they're afraid of making a mistake and they're afraid of uh, doing something where they're not sanctioned and I understand that and I, I think there's some there there's a legitimacy to that uh, concern and at the same time uh, it's a role and, and not a not a uh, uh, an ascension to uh, on high, and I think as you, I think you alluded to some of the problems with the guru model is that you can overamp the the guru uh, into something more than uh, the function is supposed to be. So I, I thought that was interesting because then, then you can act. I you can be a teacher, and and. Yet it's all—it's more about you creating a space for teaching to happen, and not being a teacher. If I'm understanding you correctly, that's that's exactly it. And you know, early on, I was I was leading a lot of workshops, and this was in the corporate field, not in the in the Gurdjieff side. Um, I felt very confident, you know, teaching evidence-based decision making and statistical analysis and that kind of stuff. No problem there. What was happening is that I was starting to teach who I was this was as I'd been working with Akash more and more. And I, I had this moment. I remember it so clearly. I, I, it was like the end of a six day workshop or something like this. And people were asking me questions and answers were just kind of coming through me. And I had this, people were just like taking notes of the pearls of wisdom that were falling from my mouth. And it absolutely panicked me. Um, I went back to Akash and I told her that this was happening and she laughed at me and I said, yeah, but they're putting me up on this podium, you know, like they're waiting for, for wisdom to come out of my mouth and then they're not going to think of their own. You know, this is not the point here. Um, and, and she said, well, you know, don't you like it when people, you know, respond really well and, and say that, you know, this was so smart. Oh, what a lovely you know, they quote you. And I said, yeah, of course, my personality really likes that and really gets off on it. And she goes, yeah, okay, good. You see where it's coming from. And she says, if you ever stand on that podium, I personally will come and knock you off of it. (laughs) (laughs) So... Yeah, so there's 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 that. It's really easy. And the other thing is that I saw with her is that there were so many of us that were starting to receive the pearls that came out of her mouth and we were starting to just like look up to her. And and I believe that she very deliberately um did things to knock herself off the the podium um, to put herself in the way of, of making intentional mistakes 
um, so that we think less of her, so that we would think more of our own growth. And so I think that's an important role for anybody that leads groups uh, is to keep reminding people of their own. It's not false humility. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, were you finished? I, I don't, I don't want to. Uh, well, uh, this is a very interesting topic to me. You know, we've had friends who are gurus and the students of the of the guru and uh, dear, dear friends, dear friends. And, um, you know, our teacher was someone who um, one of the main things he, he would do is seek out anyone who was willing to cop to being a teacher, not necessarily a guru by any means, but not, not uh, um, uh, putting those outside and in some other category. But would he, he would give public talks with other teachers, sometimes just one other, sometimes multiple others. And, um, and so I got to see... And it was really interesting to see how people manifest differently when they're sitting on a stage in front of a, an audience. That's one thing. But um, I'm really, I'm really interested in what you sort of said by, uh, you know, sort of sketched, which was Akash's response to to what I like to think of as as the human proclivity for social hierarchy and um, and how in India uh, I, um, or at least the Indian subcontinent, I'm not sure if she, if she was in Pakistan too, but um, how that, how that um, in, in, as a Hindu, as a Hindu woman, as a Hindu woman learning uh, Sufi teachings, as a Hindu woman who has this Sufi background, learning Western teachings like the Fourth Way, how it is that she was so clear about not allowing herself and not sanctioning people to be um, to, to allow themselves to fall into the trap of hierarchical relations with people that, that she was working with. So if you could, I, I would be really interested if you could talk more about that as you observed her and heard her speak about this. You know, um, I've mentioned one of the legs of our lineage being transactional analysis. Mm -hmm. Of course, it has no spiritual uh, intention. Right. Um, however, it is a razor sharp examination of ego and personality and where it comes from. And this was her primary tool. Mm. And so she looked at everything from that lens and she could therefore see the, what creates hierarchy, um, what the drive for power over an authority, where they come from. Um, where there are healthy spaces when one takes the lead and when one lets go of the lead. Mm -hmm. 
And and so this is how I believe that she managed it. And she managed to transmit it. And it's not spiritual. It's just real down-to-earth logic. Hmm. There's, there uh, are consequences, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just say any, any uh, means to under, undermine this very human proclivity, I'll call that spiritual, because um, it's so important and I mean, we could have another whole show talking about the uh, um, the, the many failures of different spiritual traditions to a great, to greater and lesser extents because of this proclivity. Yeah. And also, you know, the whole issue of transactionalism in uh, spiritual practice in general, which uh, a friend of ours, uh, the a Tibetan teacher, Ken McLeod, is. Uh, has focused a lot of attention on recently, just just in trying to under, realize how much of the language of spiritual practice is transactional in nature, and how do you get out of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I used to say, and I mean, I've seen it so many times. Just because someone is in a spiritual practice or group doesn't mean they've done the work on their personality. Yeah. Uh, and and usually, often, I mean, there's no, I don't think it's more than in other f- spheres, but it's exactly the same. We have the same personality issues until we work with them and on them and, and, and clean them up. And Gurdjieff said, you got to be a good householder before you enter this work. And I believe that's the definition of good householder is mm-hmm. taking responsibility for my feelings, for my thoughts, for my actions, in clear view of what impact they have on others and myself. Well, that's a, that's a nice uh, place to conclude because we've run out of time pretty much. Um, I do want to offer you um, the possibility just to mention how, to, how, how listeners could get in contact with you if they're interested in pursuing um, what you're up to and what you offer. Um, I have an email address. It's uh, whirler, like whirling dervishes, uh, at Gmail. And I have a website, which is akaldance.com. And we'll, we'll put those into, into the uh, podcast um, so people can click on it. And I have, um, at least for the beginning of this year, I have a retreat schedule. Um, that's already there in April. I'll be teaching first in Southern Portugal. Uh, then in Glastonbury, UK, and then in um, Estonia, a few hours outside of uh, Tallinn. Oh. So three week long workshops. Then May, June, and July, I'll be on back on Whidbey Island and people will be coming uh, to study residentially. So anybody that comes, we work with them. And then first week of first 10 days in August, I'll be back in Portugal. So the information anybody wants to write and find out about those workshops, teaching the Gurdjieff movements and ideas and fourth way work with all the tools that pop out at any moment. Uh, oh, this, this has been a, uh, 
delightful conversation. I, I really appreciate the, uh, the openness, honesty, depth of the, the, what we got into here. Yeah, I did too. Thank you both. Well, thank you. Uh, we, uh, um, um, I can imagine having another conversation in the future, so I hope uh, we can uh, uh, persuade you to do that. I feel like we could have kept on going for uh, exactly. uh, several hours. So, uh, uh, These are the good kind of conversations. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Carol Squire, Sufi Dervish, fourth-way teacher, transactional analysis facilitator, sound healer, Reiki master, leader, woman, mother, and a student just like all of us. Carol Squire is also the co-founder of the international Akaldan's Fourth Way School, begun with Akash Dharmaraj in India. Together they have co-created a unique style of transmission of the Fourth Way work using the movements as a vehicle for awakening and transformation. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.